Hello, my name's Luke and welcome to Scapegoat, the podcast where we see who gets the blame and who gets away from murder. This is the official start of our second season. I didn't put out an episode in a little time, sorry guys, uh, my laptop got fried. And I felt it would help to draw a line under things, taking what I've learned from the first season and have a bit of a new start with new ideas. But before I did this, I felt it was really important to look at fan feedback and hear what people wanted me to cover. And different people have been suggesting me episodes for the last two years of the podcast. And a popular one, which I've got a good few times, is to cover the subject of North Korea. North Korea, you know, is actually something I've always found very interesting. Especially when I ended up living in South Korea, because I was living about 70 miles away from the border. It was just so strange thinking that, like, you were with South Koreans, who are, for the most part, very friendly, nice people. You could suddenly go just 70 miles north and there'd be people who'd look identical to them but you know they wouldn't have the same lives at all and if you tried to cross a border you'd probably end up walking into a minefield and if you managed to get across you'd end up in prison and to me you know living in Europe with open borders you know I live about 20 miles from the Irish border I could cross it anytime I wanted instead of recording this podcast I could literally walk across the Irish border and uh, you know I could get a car now I could get my car and I could drive to Estonia and no one would stop me. I could drive to Portugal, I could drive to Greece. So the idea of being 70 miles away from another country and they're completely hostile to you. Not only are they openly hostile, they'll threaten to bomb you every about three weeks because you're looking at the South Korean news and then suddenly you hear, the North is threatening to bomb. And the craziest thing is, the South Koreans are not one bit bothered about it. You're just listening to the South Koreans and you say, oh my god, the North are threatening to bomb. But the North are always threatening to bomb. So they're acting like, you know, the North threatening to bomb is no big deal. It's like, oh, come on. It's just August. They always do this every August. Don't worry about it. it they're not going to do it. And you're like, but they're threatening to bomb. They're they're not going to bomb. Like, it's just so weird because they've got so aware of this that they don't even care anymore. So I just wanted to talk a bit about North Korea today. What I wanted to look into is the tale of the Hermit Kingdom, which is another name for North Korea. And how it became almost completely isolated from the rest of the world. Little is known about what goes on within its borders, apart from reports from defectors, and what the North Korean media wants us to see. A look at how the world's most repressive nation came to be, and what is life like for everyday people in North Korea. Finally, I'll look at the story of how Kim Jong-il planned to make North Korea a powerhouse of world cinema. So I feel it's important to address why there are two different Koreas. Because Korea for the longest period of time was one unified country. Starting in 918, Korea became unified and they maintained their control over the peninsula for the next 1,000 years. But starting in about 1850, Japan began to slowly have more and more influence over Korea and using tactics like assassinations, gunboat diplomacy and general threats, they managed to annex Korea by the time it was 1910. And they renamed the country Japanese Korea. During this period, Korean people suffered terribly under their Japanese rulers. Their culture was eroded with ethnic Koreans forced to take on Japanese names. So you had people with typical old school Korean names. And if they didn't make them more Japanese, they couldn't go to parliament. They couldn't vote. They couldn't have a lot of civil liberties. Just because they said, no, we want you to either become more Japanese or you're not allowed to do these things. They also plundered an awful lot of Korean artifacts. To this day, there's still in Japanese museums a lot of ancient Korean historical treasures. Korean women en masse were taken from their home and forced into prostitution, being called so-called comfort women for the Japanese army. And this happened to hundreds and thousands of women over a 35-year period. Also, 200,000 people were drafted into forced labour with an estimate of 2 million Korean people during this period dying due to Japanese rule. Korea wasn't the only country this happened to. Countries like Taiwan or northern China, during this period they had been taken over by the Japanese and they equally were suffering. However, Japan made a fatal mistake on the 7th of December 1941 by overstretching themselves. That day, if you're American, you doubtless know, was the attack on Pearl Harbor, but on the same day, they also attacked the British Empire, trying to invade Singapore and Hong Kong. So, while the Japanese gained early momentum, 
wiping out a large part of the American fleet and managing to take over areas such as Singapore, Britain and the US were not going to back down. They began to force Japan back throughout the 1940s, and with the defeat of Nazi Germany in April, Japan was alone. The forces of the Allies were determined to defeat Japan. The Western powers had agreed Britain and uh, the United States were going to attack, and they had also made an agreement at the Ulta Conference that USSR, a communist country, would also attack them. So, fearing massive casualties if they did a direct attack on Japan, the United States dropped the first two atomic bombs on Japan on the 6th and the 9th of August 1945 in an attempt to force a Japanese surrender. But on the day the second bomb landed, the USSR declared war on Japan and launched a large-scale surprise attack on the Japanese forces in northern China. Because the Japanese forces had been all trying to fight the British and the Americans, they had very little on the Russian border. So the Russians very quickly just blitzed the troops and they managed to, within a week, be in the north of Korea. So they took over a large wave of northern China and they were even in the north of Korea. The thing is, the United States, Britain and Russia, they'd all agreed that they were going to, after the war, like divide Korea amongst themselves and then let it for, till it formed a new system of government and then they would let it be independent. But the United States and Britain were worried because in Europe, when the Soviets had taken over places like Hungary or Czechoslovakia, they didn't seem to want to give them back. So the United States were terrified the USSR would end up taking over the entire Korean peninsula. They rushed to try and make an agreement because they figured these troops could end up taking Korea within the next week. So they said, okay, we're going to have to make a deal with Russia to try and divide Korea fairly. So they sent two young army officers to draw up a proposed divide of Korea. And these men had no idea about Korea. They'd barely even thought of it before, but they were just given a copy of a National Geographic with a copy of a map in Korea and said, divide this fairly. In two days, the army officers devised what they thought would be fair. They're going to divide the landmass in two along what they call the 38th parallel, which is just a line of longitude, which is just like 38 degrees north of the equator. It was a land which was dividing Korea loosely in two. But it was not exactly the fairest divide because it meant the north would be controlled by the USSR and would have 9 million people. Well, the United States would control the 16 million people and the capital city Seoul. People were kind of thinking... Now, this is just like a first gambit. Russia's going to want more, and then we're going to have to have a compromise. But to the shock, the USSR just accepted their terms. And the Americans were like, at least they didn't take over the full thing. And we've got great terms, so we're happy enough. Take from this, the USSR communists controlled the 9 million people in the north. The Americans capitalists controlled the people in the south. They began to plan, once they had both taken over, to try and reunite the country. But as you can guess, there's fundamental differences between communism and capitalism. The United States wanted general elections throughout the country to find like the candidates who are the most popular and just let them take over the country. While the North refused because they were looking at the odds and thinking 16 million in the South, if they all vote capitalism and we've only got 9 million people, capitalists will just take over and this won't be a communist country. So instead, the North boycotted the elections. So Russia said, we're not taking part of these elections. So the South elected, via UN consensus, a man called Syngman Rhee. And in the North, they didn't really elect a leader for another three months until it was announced they had appointed a man called Kim Il-sung as the leader of the North. Now, Kim Il-sung had a lot of connections with Russia. He had been an independence fighter throughout the period of Japanese occupation of Korea, and he had fought in both China and the North Korea. When it came to the war, he ended up in Russian territory and was trained by the USSR and their Red Army to be a soldier who would try and retake Korea. This guy was Soviet trained and he was a military man. So, of course, he was pretty much what Russia wanted to be the Korean leader. Starting in 1948, the USSR withdrew their troops and in 1949, the USA withdrew their troops, leaving basically Korea, North Korea, South Korea, two countries, 
independent from each other, but they didn't have any more armies inside it. They only had their own. But they had completely different philosophies, and both countries believed they should control the entire Korean peninsula. The North thought that uh, the South should join them, the South thought the North would join them, and they couldn't really reach a compromise. But in 1950, to break the deadlock, Kim Il-sung sent troops across the parallel, invading South Korea. Now, the South Koreans were not in any way prepared for this, and the North, who were like trained army men who had been trained by the USSR and had a lot of support from the USSR and communist China, quickly overran the South's troops. They had taken over Seoul within a couple of days, and within two months, they had taken over almost the entire country, apart from a little pouch in the southeast around the city of Busan, which is now known as Busan. So the North was controlling most of Korea, and they were thinking, this was a great idea to invade. So you can imagine the United States had only withdrawn their troops a year before, and they did not want to see communism spreading to any of our countries. So they went to the UN and said, here, we've got to get the North to leave. The North refused. So using the United Nations, the United States managed to get a UN contingent of countries to agree to support the South and invade the North. Later that year, the UN contingent arrived, but instead of invading the North, starting from the South, you know, around Busan, they did a surprise attack at Incheon, which is around Seoul, cutting off the North supply lines, and they quickly drove all the Northern troops back because they were starving. They managed to drive all the North Koreans out of South Korea, so now you've got the UN controlling South Korea, the North controlling the North, and originally the plan was just stop there. Stop at the parallel, let everything go the same way it had been before the war. But the United States decided, okay, now that we've got the North Koreans on the rope, we'll invade and we'll make a united capitalist Korea. And as you can imagine, the USSR and China weren't really fond of this idea. So they kept warning, here, if you invade the North, we're going to invade. If you invade the North, we're going to invade. I mean, the UN and the US were like, nah, we'll just keep invading. So... Pretty much when the UN got very close to the Chinese border, China launched a surprise attack from the north, driving the UN troops back and driving them back pretty much to the 38th parallel. So without going too much in the Korean War, pretty much from this point, the UN drives China back, China drives the UN back, and they're fighting along the border for the next three years. But there was no strong appeal by both sides to have a bloody drawn-out war since World War II had only really finished about five years before. So by 1953, there was an armistice between both sides agreeing to draw the border where fighting had stopped, and a demilitarized zone, a DMZ, of about four kilometers between both countries. So both the North and South were devastated by the war, losing a large amount of infrastructure. And the pity for both countries were that there was a slightly different border than there had been in 1950. Well, neither country could really say that they had won more than the other, because South Korea had taken over a little bit more territory, but they had lost an important city to the north, and it was just a general stalemate. And with the infrastructure down, the north decided to arrange their country around communist principles of such as land reform, collective farming, and five-year plans of industrialization. They relied on the support of other communist countries to fund this. And, you know, in the beginning, the two Koreas remained at a reasonably similar economic level. However, American funding of the South and in the 1960s, South Korean President Park Chun-hee taking the South Korean economy with over with an iron fist. It meant that with the new economic policies, the North began to get weaker and the South began to get stronger. So by the 1980s, South Korean GDP was double that of the North. By the 1990s, it was four times higher. By the year 2000s, it was 10 times higher. By 2010, it was Lucy 20 times higher. So you can kind of see North not really good economically, the South doing very well. It's also important to note at this point that a lot of uh, North Korean problems come from the fact that it's a very corrupt country economically. So a lot of the things that they're spending money on are to build giant prestige projects while they're actually letting their people starve. So the North and South have maintained a hostile relationship with the Korean War officially never ending but just a ceasefire in 1953. There's been low-level armed conflicts along the border by both sides, and both sides planning assassination attempts on each other's leaders, uh, including like the death of the South Korean president's wife in 1974. So the latest conflicts, you know, 
it's been going on for a while. Things had calmed down. Then in the year 2011, 2010, North Korea torpedoed a South Korean ship called the Chunan, sinking it and killing 46 sailors. Later that year, they bombarded an island off South Korea called Yongpyong with 170 missiles, killing four and injuring 22 because there was South Korean ships in what they thought were their territorial waters. And of 2006, North Korea has conducted several nuclear tests with now suspected 30 nuclear weapons and the materials to make 60 more. They currently have an estimated launching range, which means missiles could reach as far as Finland, Alaska or Northern Australia. In the recent past, things have really begun to thaw a bit between the two Koreas, who have been very hostile for 60 years. But starting about 2018 with the South Korean Winter Olympics, the Koreas have started to come together and tried to find a bit of peace. But many people are still wary about this new relationship and the aims of North Korea. So that is, within about 10 minutes, the entire history of North and South Korea. So we can see in a 70-year period, South Korea became one of the world's most powerful rich countries. Well, in contrast, North Korea, for a country its size, became one of its poorest. Today, North Korea is known as a hermit kingdom because so little information gets in or out. They have five state-run media channels and several newspapers, but these TV channels are only operational at 5pm on weekends. And as you can imagine by a country which is so secretive, the news that they give is hardly fair and balanced. It's mostly stuff about how great the country is, how great the leader is, and anything really about the outside world tends to be quite negative. So it's not exactly something you could trust. Foreign journalists are rarely let into North Korea and what they film and report is closely monitored. They are followed by guides or minders who tell them what they're allowed to film, tell them where they're allowed to go and not what they're not. So you can hardly go into North Korea looking for a scoop. In North Korea, there is approximately 25 million people. Up to 18 million people don't have access to electricity, so they can't even watch this TV. The population is mostly rural farmers and there is a lack of things like paved roads with 97% of roads in North Korea being gravel or dirt. However, members of the political elite and military are the only ones who are allowed to drive. So the majority of the population aren't worried because they're not allowed to leave the province that they were born in and they have to rely on public transports. There not being that many paved roads isn't a great worry to the mass of the population. North Korea has the world's fourth largest military with 1,200,000 active service personnel or 5.7 million reserves. So they've got the 72nd largest population, fourth largest military. That is a military more, there's more in this North Korean military than there are people in Scotland or in the whole island of Ireland or Wales or many US states. And there can be large-scale food shortages throughout the country, with a massive famine between 1994 and 1998 killing 3 million people. The difference in nutrition, because North Korean food is that rationed, means that while North Koreans and South Koreans were genetically identical from 1945, they are now about an inch to three inches shorter than South Koreans because malnourishment has affected them that much. North Korean lifespans are also about 10 years less than South Koreans. The North Korean political system was originally very close to Stalinist communism, but however, they fell out with China and Russia throughout the 60s and 70s and started to move towards a system that they called Juse, which followed the idea of internal Korean self-reliance and independence. So by the age of five, most children are taught the importance of putting the state before themselves they're taught to chant their love for their great leader. Most of the individualism of children is stripped away from them. And in school, they're made to complete drills to see what class can march the best in unison. And if you ever dreamed of becoming a primary school teacher in North Korea, the one requirement you need to become a teacher, apart from being loyal to the state, is you need to be able to play the accordions. Good luck with that. North Korea is divided into a class system depending on your loyalty to the ruling party. Those who aren't seen as loyal or from a loyal family 
have no access to resources and those who are loyal or from a loyal family have access to loads of things like university, food, medical supplies. They are even the ones who are allowed to drive cars. The system of class in North Korea is called Songbun, where there's 50 different classifications of how loyal or disloyal you are. But there's three main classifications that we'll discuss, which is the loyal class, which is about 25% of the population. So these are the people who would get the access to the best resources because they're seen as loyal. Then they've got the wavering class. So this is about 55% of people. This is people who are like, uh, they're okay, but we're not, they're not too hot. And the final 20% is the hostile class. Now, your class is associated with your ancestor and their deed, as well as your current family's actions. If your grandfather fought in the Korean War for North, you'll be privileged. You'll probably get to go to university. The Songbun system will be very kind to you. You might even be able to live in Pyongyang, which is the capital of North Korea, and you have to be very loyal to be let live there. While, for instance, if your grandfather was a merchant or a lawyer or a religious figure like a priest, they would be likely the lowest class. So you might end up in a prison camp or you might end up just barely having enough food to survive because your granddad did something to annoy the system. Because there is a generational rule in Korea about the way people are punished. So people who do serious misdeeds are punished by a free generation rule. Where the person being punished is children will be punished as well as their grandchildren. So if your father spoke out against Kim Jong-il, your child will also probably suffer. Yeah, you have to be super careful because you'll be jinxing people for the next maybe 120 years because of an action that you do today. However, serious crimes can be committed really, really easily. So it's not like you're thinking, okay, murder, maybe I can see a free generational thing for that. The crimes where you can get a free generational rule can be things that you would not even think are crimes because all non-North Korean media is banned. So if you somehow end up watching a South Korean TV drama or American music, you know, these are actually crimes punishable by death. They want no foreign culture. So if you happen to find a disc with a South Korean like K-pop song or, you know, a K-drama and they catch you with it, you'll just be killed. You know, if you own something like a Bible or a Quran, you could be killed. For instance, 80 Christians were publicly executed in a stadium by machine guns in 2013 just for owning a Bible. There's a countrywide travel ban, meaning you have to be a very high-ranking official to be let out of the country or a person of great note. So most North Koreans aren't even allowed to leave their province. So you, there's like internal passporting. So if you want to go somewhere like to visit a relative you need to get government like approval because they don't want people moving along and again Pyongyang the capital you have to be the highest rank to live there because they don't want dissidents anywhere near the Kim family now you might think hmm, this country doesn't sound very good I might leave so if you manage to flee the country or even flee a work camp that you've been put into all your family will be rounded up and put there in your place you know, people even wanting to leave, you're under a serious threat because, you know, if you leave, your family will be punished. Accessing the internet is also a punishable offence. There's a version of the internet which is used in North Korea, but it's basically just an internal network where you can't access pages outside North Korea. So the North Korean internet, you know, you can reach North Korean Google and type in, who's the most handsome boy? Wow, it's Kim Jong-un. While, like, you know, if you actually went to real Google, this might not be the result. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just saying it might not be. If you go onto the actual outside internet, you'll be severely punished. However, due to, again, a lack of phones, electricities, computers, it's a very rare problem for people to come across the internet by accident. But the greatest punishments in North Korea are for those who challenge the Kim dynasty, who are the original leader... Kim Il-sung, his son, Kim Jong-il, and the current ruler, Kim Jong-un. The ruling family have a huge cult of personality around them, being seen as godlike, if not gods. Crimes against the ruling family are numerous, with, for instance, one journalist being jailed for misspelling Kim Il-sung's name. 
and another for not correctly dusting a portrait of one of their leaders. Portraits of the Kim family are all over North Korea and it's illegal, for instance, to turn your back on of these pictures. It's illegal to turn your back on these statues. So you could end up in trouble by not knowing where pictures are in a room. Now, with the death of Kim Jong-il in 2011, there was mass displays of mourning. People were throwing themselves on the ground and openly weeping, like acting like the world had come to an end. And many people were puzzling over this, but the people who were not openly mourning, or not seen as sad enough, were jailed or even executed. So to understand North Korea, I think it's important to understand the Kim dynasty. Kim Il-sung had originally been only a factional leader of North Korea. However, after the Korean War, he began to do purges and eventually he made himself undisputed leader. Once he took over, he began to build a cult of personality around himself and then his family, with his mother being known as the mother of all Korea and his father being referred to as a great revolutionary. When Kim Il-sung died, his son Kim Jong-il took over. And Kim Il-sung, although he died, was so popular that they announced that he would remain president while Kim Jong-il would only take over as chairperson. So to this day, the official leader of North Korea is someone who died 25 years ago. I know that's strange, but that's the way it works. Now, there have been many claims about the achievements by North Koreans of Kim Jong-il, because according to state media, he has had many achievements. For instance, when he took over in 1994, Pyongyang built its first golf course. Kim was given the honour of playing the first round. When he returned, his scorecard was 38 under par, with him getting 11 holes in one. All of his 17 bodyguards were put forward as people who had witnessed this feat, and few people challenged it because it seemed legit that the leader would get 11 holes in one and get the greatest score in the history of golf on his first time. A government website has once also claimed that he does not need to urinate or defecate although that's now been removed. In the year 2000, he claimed he had come up with a new creation, which he called the double bread meat. A sandwich which had an uncamely resemblance to what people might call a hamburger, but North Korea praised his innovation. In the year 2010, North Korean media reported that Kim Jong-il had become a fashion icon all over the world, and fashion designers from London to Paris were trying to steal his signature look. Now, in 2010, it's not a long time ago, but I don't really remember people wearing the Kim Jong-il look, but maybe my memory's gone faulty. So, Kim Jong-il was portrayed within North Korea as a revolutionary mind, an inspirational figure who walked from the age of three weeks old and began talking from eight weeks old. But in the South, Kim Jong-il is portrayed as a bit of a playboy who likes drinking Hennessy, eating expensive foreign foods, while his people starved. But his main passion, as portrayed by the South, is film. He began working for the Korean Central Committee and to go with their art and propaganda department when he first became of age, and he was given access to 15,000 films which he watched. He was impressed by foreign films like James Bond and felt the South Korean movie industry had far outstripped the North. He felt the North's movies were far too ideologically driven, with each movie having a hero who dies for their glorious leader, and there's always a scene of so many people crying. Kim Jong-il wanted to revitalise the film industry and came up with a plan. So, I'm going to speak a bit now about pronunciation, because in the next part of our story we're going through several Korean names, and I lived in South Korea and I can pronounce Korean names, but I actually find it very difficult to say a name completely correctly and to continue like the flow of what I was saying. For instance, there's a lady whose name is in the story and it would be very close to saying uh, her name is Miss J. But if I'm actually trying to say that and say that in a sentence, I actually always tend to slip up and not be able to make things as flowing. So I'm going to use what the Western media would describe as her name, which would be Miss Choi because it's easier for me to say, because I can say Miss Choi walked down the street and, you know, I can say that fairly easily, while with Miss Choi, it's 
a little bit uh, more difficult for me. Also, you know, there's a thing that we have in the West, which is like people who can speak like one word of a language well. And it kind of always sounds weird. It's like people who say like, you know, they go into a Spanish restaurant and they're like, hello, mate, can I have some guacamole? You know? <laughs> I always find it really funny. Like, you know, someone's being like, you know, OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what are you having here? Yeah, got me a mate. Can I have some gizcacho? You know. <laughs> just like uh, okay well like either be speaking spanish or don't throw all that into that i mean it just reminds me just if you ever speak a language but you put no effort into it it can also sound very funny like if i try and speak french i always try and put like an emphasis into like trying to speak it properly being like oh bonjour ça va ça va bien merci et toi both you know you put a little bit of emphasis into it but I have a friend and he just speaks French in a Belfast accent and it's the most wonderful thing you have to hear. It's like, Bonjour, ça va, bon. Oh, j'habite dans une maison en appartement en Irlande de Nord. Pray to Belfast, big man, or whatever should I say, grand garçon. You know, it just sounds ridiculous. So just for this bit, no offense is intended if you're in South Korea or are South Korean to my pronunciation of names i do not wish to be disrespectful but i just would find it very difficult to say things in a certain way for this so we're going to restart our story in 1960 talking about a south korean power couple shin san ok was south korea's biggest film director a true innovator of the medium he was always outspending his competitors so when his rivals made an eight thousand dollar picture he'd make a twenty dollars or $30,000 blockbuster. He quickly gained the title of the Prince of South Korean Cinema, and he was married to a beautiful actress called Choi Yun-hee, who had worked with him in a movie called A Flower in Hell. The movie role had garnered her so much praise that she had gained the equivalent of an Oscar in South Korea. She gained two more of these awards in 1962 and 1965. So the couple was hugely popular, traveling to international film festivals around the world, being snapped with A-list Hollywood movie stars such as Marilyn Monroe. The couple didn't have any children, but instead adopting two called uh, Jung-kun and Myung-kim. So you can kind of see a bit of a vibe that they might be a bit like an Angelina Jolie-Brad Pitt relationship back in the day, like adopting children being the coolest thing to come out of South Korea. And the two were completely synonymous with each other's work, working exclusively together between 1958 and 1967 with a host of blockbuster films. However, after this point, the film's profitability together began to become questionable and the couple often found debt collectors waiting for them outside their house to pay back the costs of their film. So imagine here, instead of Angelina Jolie, Brad Pitt, it's a bit more like Johnny Depp. So there was a period from about 2002 to about 2012 that Johnny Depp could do absolutely no wrong. And, you know, people said, oh, God, a Johnny Depp, Tim Burton movie. Well, go watch it. Well, it's 2019. And if someone said, look, do you want to go watch a Tim Burton, Johnny Depp movie? You know, I, I wouldn't. And I don't see how any movie with them can be profitable from this point onwards. The couple started working on projects apart with Choi being a huge star, but new regulations about morality in film began to appear in South Korea. This was similar to what happened in Hollywood during the 1930s, during the Hayes Code, uh, you know, something that we else talk about in Scapegoat if you want to go back and listen to the movie industry episode. With these new kind of morality rules, it kind of badly affected Shin's work, because Shin was a bit of an exploitative director, in a deeply conservative country. So Shin was making movies where the lead character was a prostitute and like the powers that be were like, oh, this Shin dude, he's up to badness. He's going to corrupt the youth. We need to put a stop to him. So by 1975, Shin had been completely banned from making movies in South Korea because they were terrified he was going to be like a bit of a degenerate and like make the youth go a bit bad. Like imagine Quentin Tarantino, 1995. So by the 1970s, they had been working completely separate because, you know, Shin couldn't work to save his life. And Choi was still a popular movie star. But Choi began to hearing rumors that Shin was fooling around with other women. Shin denied this 
and Choi was content to trust her husband. However, in 1976, she learned that he had fathered children with a much younger actress called Osumi, and she immediately divorced Shin, being like, okay, I'll take rumours, or fine, but you're going to have twins? No, I can't have twins. We're getting a divorce. But if you can imagine, she had been a very popular movie star, but after her divorce, her career really hit the rocks, and she found it hard to find work. Again, South Korea at the time was a deeply conservative country. She was a divorcee, and it was kind of killing her career. And she was desperate to pay off debts, because the couple ended up having a lot of debts, because Shin's films hadn't made any money, and he had taken out a lot of loans, and after the divorce, she kind of owed half the money that he had spent, and she was looking for any acting opportunities to try and pay off these debts. She was offered a break in 1978 when she was approached by a businessman who wished to form a film company in Hong Kong with her. She met this businessman, a guy called Wang Dol Il, who took her out to luxurious restaurants and treated her very well. So she was like, yeah, I'm a film star. I'm accustomed to this treatment. And she was waiting for Mr. Wang to pretty much tell her about the business. But he was always very light on details. So he'd be like oh, tell me about this business venture. And he was like, oh, don't worry about that. Try these oysters. She began to feel a little bit uneasy. After several days in Hong Kong, she shook it off, but she occasionally would be seeing out of the corner of her eyes. People were taking photographs of her, and she wasn't quite sure, did they recognise her as a film star, or was something a bit more sinister going on? One day, she was taken out by an associate of Wang called Miss Lee, who had brought her daughter as well. Because Choi didn't know Hong Kong, she was taken around sightseeing and shopping. And due to Miss Lee having a daughter with her, Choi felt like very much at ease. Because she was like, nothing bad is going to happen when I'm with a woman and her daughter. So Miss Lee said she had discovered another opportunity for Choi in running a performing academy. So Choi's like, Dude, I've got no money. I'll run a performing academy, sure. I'll go meet your business associate. Choi was taken by Miss Lee to an empty part of the Hong Kong Bay. And Choi followed Miss Lee and her daughter to where four big men were standing beside a speedboat. Now, I don't know why you'd follow here, but she seemed to be like, dip, 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 this is going fine. And as Choi neared, two men grabbed her and quickly sedated her. When Choi woke up, she was in the captain's quarters of a North Korean supply ship. When on board the ship, you know, she just looked out of the flag and said, oh God, I'm a North Korean ship. And, you know, when she was on board, the ship's doctor sedated her several times until nine days later, she had barely eaten or drank anything and she was landed to port in North Korea. So as she got off the ship, she was approached by North Korean photographers who began to take photos of her. And at the end of the pier, she was met by a small man in a dark coat, reached for her arm for a handshake and said, thank you for coming. Choi recognised this man as Kim Jong-il, son of the North Korean leader. Kim Jong-il explained to Choi he wanted to revitalise North Korean cinema and he had brought her there as a guest and a partner to involve her in this. Choi didn't know how to reply because she had been kidnapped and she felt her life was in danger. But, you know, what do you say when he says, here, do you want to join my film company? She's like, uh, this is the son of a North Korean leader. Uh, yes, sure. I came here because I wanted to help you, scary, scary man. She kind of didn't know what to do. But like Kim Jong-il started taking her around events in North Korea. And she was generally describes herself at this period as being pretty much his puppet. That he's like, oh hey, you're going to join my film company. So here, why don't you go out to this North Korean opera and watch it? It will teach you socialist values. Here, here's a tutor who will teach you all about North Korean ideology. So they were attempting to brainwash her. And not knowing what to do, she pretty much said, you know, I'm going to pretend to go along with this because they're treating me nicely, but if I don't go along, I might just get shot. She described Kim Jong-il as a major cinephile who had a movie projector in all of his houses and would often go watch movies and she would just be invited around to watch movies with him. And he insisted that she watched different movies when she was alone. So basically, she would leave his presence. He'd be like, here's five movies you need to watch. She's like, oh God, I'm trapped with a nerd who's in control of an entire country and could have me murdered. And like the first, one of the movies he got her to watch was called The 41st, where 
at the end the lead actress shoots her lover for portraying her ideals and she says she watched this movie and Kim had been insisting for weeks she should watch this and she kind of finally understood what her role in North Korea was. She said, he needed me, but if I betrayed him, he'd kill me. So back in Hong Kong, the hotel that Choi had been staying in reported that there had been a guest who left without paying her bill. When the police visited the hotel, they noticed that old Choi's clothes and makeup were still there. It did not look like the scene of someone who had fled by night. It looked like something had happened to her. So they reported Choi as a missing person. And as you can imagine, if, for instance, a huge movie star from 10 years ago suddenly went missing. It's like, Johnny Depp goes missing in Malaysia. Like, people would be actually genuinely like, what's going on here? Concerned for his ex-wife and mother of his adopted children, yes, it seems actually both Choi and Shin were actually really good with their adopted kids. Shin went out to Hong Kong looking for his ex-wife. Although he encountered rumours there, he didn't actually know what had happened to her, but the rumours were scary to him because they were all involving North Koreans. While looking for her there, he encountered an old friend from the Korean film industry who offered him the opportunity to work in Hong Kong for films. And again, like his wife or ex-wife, he needed money badly. And since his sister was looking after his kids, he accepted saying, look, here, I'll work on some Hong Kong movies. That should be cool. So one day, his new colleague was driving him around and he was at Repulse Bay in Hong Kong. She inspected nothing until the car stopped and three men wearing very long wigs got into the car either side of him, put a bag over his head and made him inhale chloroform. Shin woke up in a North Korean prison ship, just like Choi. When he arrived, they basically turned to him and said, here, we're going to take you around and show you all these operas and all this sort of things like they had actually promised Choi. But he said, no, no, I want to leave here. And he wasn't compliant. So what did they do to Chin? They immediately chucked him into a detention facility because he wasn't playing ball. Where North Korean guards tried to persuade him about the glory of North Korea. Being like, yeah, North Korea's best Korea. You need to join the team here, buddy. But he kind of realized, here, I'm not going to be brainwashed by this. And the guards realized it. So he's kept there for six months. And, you know, when he was there for six months he thought look where's my wife where's my ex-wife when he actually looked documentaries of him he always describes her as his wife i think he was deeply regretting getting a divorce from her it wasn't something that he really wanted so he's like where's my wife where's my wife i want to meet him but the north koreans were giving no answers after six months shin realized he needed to escape being a movie director he envisioned his escape like a movie so he had it all planned out as a scene in his head so one night he dug up the floorboards and tunneled out of the prison successfully. He found a bike, he cycled it as fast as he could till he came across crane tracks. Then he snuck on the roof of a passing train and thought, look, here, I'll just board this train till it exits the country and I'll be free. Unfortunately for Shin, he did not check where the train was going and it was just part of an elongated loop that would kept going around in circles every two hours. He was just like, trapped going in circles on top of a train, but he didn't realise this. So exhausted from all his cycling, he fell asleep on the roof of the train, only to be woken up the next day by North Korean soldiers. When he had been sleeping on top of the train, one of his legs had dangled down in front of one of the carriages. The conductor had seen it, and they called for soldiers. Shin was put into even harsher camps now for political dissidents, for trying to escape, and he kind of came up with the realisation it's going to be almost impossible to escape, I better just play along and try and make the situation as good as I can. For his North Korean guards, he was just like, yeah, I, I now believe in North Korea. North Korea is best Korea, only Korea. But, you know, they weren't really taking him too seriously because he had tried to escape. But Choi had been playing along very well. So for three and a half years, she pretended to agree with the ideology. She was, like, mostly taken around by Kim Jong-il or by North Korean high society, but when she was alone, she claims that she was a miserable wreck and she cried her friends and loved ones in the South. She cried their names out loud, praying that someone would come and rescue her. So one day, a North Korean minder came to her isolated cottage and said that she needed to come to Kim Jong-il's birthday. You know, it was said as a request, but you can't exactly turn down the, the great leader's son as he was at this point. 
So when she got to his party, she couldn't believe her eyes. There was her ex-husband, Shin. She had felt like breaking down into tears, but she feared that, like, you know, she'd be giving too much away, that she didn't like the States. So she was very formal, saying, oh, hello, ex-husband. And he was like, hello, ex-wife. And Kim Jong-il was like, oh, look at you two. You're such a happy couple again, being all formal and stuff. I think it would be great if you guys both, like, helped with this North Korean cinema project and worked together for the greatness of North Korea. So you'll help director Shin, won't you, Choi? And she's like, yeah, yeah, sure. I'll do whatever you say, glorious Kim Jong-il. Then Kim Jong-il said, look, if you're going to be helping on Shin's project, for respectability purposes, you have to remarry Shin. So she had divorced him, and now the leader, or the son of the leader of North Korea, was saying, you better remarry your ex-husband. And, you know, again, it was put as a suggestion, but if the North Korean leader's son tells you to do something, you do it. They were very quickly remarried. So when Choi and Shin finally got together, they privately began speaking to each other and saying, are you actually loyal to North Korea? And they're like, nah, nah, I'm just playing it cool. So they both like said, we need to leave, but we fear for our lives. We need to get out, but we need to come up with a plan. And Shin told Choi that like, even if they managed to flee, they wouldn't even be welcomed back to South Korea because they'd be called enemies of the state for working with the North. They said like, if we ever make a movie, South Korea will want nothing to do with us. They'll say, oh, you chose to go to the North. Well, go away then. They had to do this smart. They had to find evidence that they were being coerced. So they came up with a plan to record Kim Jong-il with a cassette recorder hidden in Choi's handbag. They were trying to be like, find Kim Jong-il and get him to confess to his crime so they could play this in South Korea to try and let themselves back in the country. So it's just like, Imagine having a dictator who could have you killed for saying the wrong words, but you're trying to egg him on to confessing to kidnap. This was, as you can imagine, something they were finding very difficult. But just eventually one day Kim Jong-il just came forward and just said, Oh, hey, uh, you know, remember when I kidnapped you? Well, I'm sorry if we're being really heavy handed, but I just told my guards to bring you here. I didn't intend to throw you in prison. Uh, like he just came out and said this and they were like, Okay, that this is gold. You've got that recorded? Yeah, yeah. And like he said, all I want to do is bring you here to work for the greatness of cinema. And they were like, oh, that's cool. Great leader. Oh, you're a good man. You're a good man. Because like they were just like still terrified of him. And like, you know, but we've got the evidence so we can now escape if we need to. Kim Jong-il at this time was giving them an unlimited budget to make the best movies that they could. And he said, you can make any movies that you want as long as we're with a North Korean ideological framework. So Shin and Choi began to produce a lot of films, making 17 in two and a half years. Kim Jong-il often acted as executive producer and oversaw the film shoot, hanging around and scaring the life out of everyone there. Because they were like, oh dude, you don't want to step on his shoes or upset him or turn your back on him or you could be killed. So the couple were working like, maybe 21 hours a day trying to make these films but they were glad of the distraction because they said we needed to get away from North Korean society because it was just that terrible that we were happy to work all day. While some of these movies that they made during this period were rushed some got critical acclaim the first time in North Korean history and because of this that they wanted to show the films in other Soviet countries so people normally ignored North Korean films but like the North Koreans said, oh, we've got actually a good director. So the other Soviet countries were like, okay, let's see your films. So they sent out Choi and Shin to, for instance, first the Belgrade Film Festival were one of their films. And when they got to the Bel Belgrade Film Festivals, it was the first time anyone had seen them outside North Korea in about five years. And they were like, here, uh, have you been kidnapped by North Korea? Nod once for yes, nod twice for no. And they were like, we have willfully defected to North Korea because you know there's about 20 bodyguards around them being like we have willfully defected because we love Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il they are both number one handsome boys but like they're like oh god you know we have to defect we have to claim we defected but you know we just need to play this cool we need to play this cool because you know when you're surrounded by North Korean minders they knew like you know we have to wait till there's the proper time to make a break and they made one hugely popular film called Salt, which gained 
an award from the Moscow Film Festival for the greatest actress, which went to Choi, which came to Kim Jong Il as a great praise because finally one of his movies was getting like awarded by like a worldwide organization. So he was like, "Yep, I I kidnapped these guys and they're making great films and this is awesome and Kim Jong Il is awesome." They a couple began to introduce more genres to North Korean cinema which had never been there before. Again, it's the North Korean cinema had been like a bunch of people being martyrs and a bunch of people crying. And Choi and Shin were bringing like things like love stories or musical to North Korea for the first time. But their most infamous and probably best film was the final film that they made for North Korea, which was made at the insistence of Kim Jong-il, who had just watched the Japanese horror movie Godzilla. Kim Jong-il wanted to make a version of Godzilla with a pro-North Korean agenda. He said, look, we're going to talk about this ancient monster called Pugasari, and it's going to be for the glory of the North Korean people. So Pugasari, for those who haven't seen it, and I do advise you to watch it because I've watched it, is the plot is amazing, and I advise you just to look it up. So, put simply, there is... A little girl who is a blacksmith's daughter and an evil king. And the evil king is like trying to get rid of all the peasants and being mean and nasty. And the blacksmith is captured, but he makes a little doll for his daughter. And then she accidentally drops blood onto it. And then it turns in, the toy turns into a giant metal eating monster. And basically the monster keeps growing and growing. It defeats the king, but continues to eat metal. And to stop all this, you know, and to stop this monster oppressing the people, the girl decides to jump into a giant bell made of metal and is eaten by the monster. And from grief from eating his friend, monster exp- stomach explodes and it disintegrates. So, yeah, that's pretty much the movie. Again, I would deeply appreciate if the disaster artists who just covered Godzilla covered this movie because I think it would be great how you would escape Pugasari. So, Johnny and Shane, this is my challenge to you. Well, this film had a huge budget and was a huge success. And Choi and Shin were asked to go to Europe to start scouting out more filming locations because Kim Jong-il was super pleased with Pugasari. And they said, here, can we go to like Prague and like start filming like historical dramas there? Because they could be even bigger. And Kim Jong-il was like, go on ahead. As long as you don't try and flee and you stay in the Eastern Bloc, because, you know, Eastern Bloc countries still communists. They'll send them back to North Korea if they try and flee. He said, do this. But if you try and flee, we'll kill you. Ha 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 ha. But seriously, we'll kill you. And basically, the couple were in communist countries. They were, like, scouting out different filming locations, surrounded by about 20 security personnel. When they were in Prague scouting out, they got invited to the Berlin Film Festival, where, you know, initially... They didn't really think they could get to Berlin because Berlin at the time, well, West Berlin was not communist. And this is where the film festival happened. But because it was surrounded by a communist country and they had so many minders and they seemed loyal enough, they were let go. And when they were at the Berlin Film Festival, they didn't try and flee. But they met international critics that they had met when they were superstars in South Korea. When they had a moment alone they quickly begged a French critic to pass some tapes on to the American embassy and a Japanese critic to send a tape to Choi's family. So they had been making plenty of tapes of Kim Jong-il, so they sent these to the American embassy being like, here, here's Kim Jong-il, we want to escape. And however, whenever they met other South Koreans, they snubbed them. So they had met South Koreans in you when they were film stars and they were like, huh look at you we freely went to north korea and it's the best place to make films and it gives us creative freedom so go away of our south koreans but because they did this because they were snubbing over south koreans it was the first time they had met over south koreans the news came back to kim jong-il and he was really thrilled because he finally believed they were truly indoctrinated because he said oh they met their friends and they were telling their friends you should come to north korea because it's best korea well that's great I finally trust these people. They're true communists, just like me. And the tapes were sent to the American embassy and they began to feel like, okay, how can we get these guys freed? So Choi and Shin asked Kim Jong-il, here, we're planning to make an epic based on the life of Genghis Khan 
and can we get $3 million to make this? And North Korea, which is like, grand, we'll give you $3 million to make a movie on Genghis Khan. You're fine. That's cool. And, you know, they said, here, can we sign this deal with an executive producer in Vienna? You know, the movie's going to be filmed in Budapest, which is communist, but in neutral Vienna is where this guy wants to meet. And he wants to sign this contract. And Kim Jong-il was just like, okay, you can go to Vienna. It's not communist, but, you know, it's neutral. But you still have 20 guards around you, so you shouldn't flee. Plus, I kind of trust you now. You guys go off to Vienna. Feeling Shin wouldn't betray him, and if they did, the bodyguards would just shoot him. They went off to Vienna. But early one morning, when the guards were in the other room, Choi and Shin snuck out of their hotel and into a taxi outside, where they asked to be quickly driven to the American embassy. They felt relieved, but after a few streets, they realised they were being chased by a white car filled by their North Korean minders. Telling the taxi to go as fast as possible, they hoped and prayed the other car wouldn't catch them. Then fortunately, at one junction, several cars became between their cars and they managed to get a little bit of a gap. So the taxi stopped outside the US embassy, but they still had to do a bit of a run to get in. So being chased... They managed to make it through the gates of the U.S. Embassy just in time to get in and claim asylum. And, you know, they were finally free. The U.S. Embassy, you know, was pleased enough to have these defecting people from North Korea, but they wanted to keep it quiet. They didn't want to be like, here, we've taken these defected people. But the tape that had been sent to Choi's sister ended up being played in front of the South Korean media. And on this tape... It was Choi and Shin saying they had been kidnapped and this caused a massive outrage in South Korean protests. And within 10 days, the New York Times learned they had been defected and were in American custody. So the riots started to calm down. They were later brought in front of the American press and told to tell their story to the world. After being under American protection for two years, they were released and lived in California, where Shin worked as the producer on several films including some of the Free Ninja movies, where he also acted as a film director. Both Choi and Shin returned to South Korea, but while many accepted Choi's story of being kidnapped by North Korea, there was many rumours that Shin had went there willingly. Due to this, many saw him as a traitor and rejected him. They returned to South Korea in 1999, where they remained married until Shin's death in 2006, after complications from liver surgery. Unfortunately for him, before his death, the South Korean government had refused to give him a license to direct, maintaining his ban from the 1970s. Due to working for North Korea, he would never direct again. Joy survived her husband for 13 years, dying on the 16th of April 2018 to widespread mourning across South Korea. Kim Jong-il died of his youngest son taking over North Korea. But we're going to discuss this on next week's episode where we speak about Kim Jong-un's succession and the disgrace and death of his older brother, Kim Jong-nam. So this is the end of the first part of our North Korean episode. I've always found this uh, quite an interesting topic because the idea of like being kidnapped by a foreign like dictator, but he kind of loves your work. If you've ever seen the movie The Last King of Scotland, it also reminds me a bit of this, that like someone who's very unhinged likes you, I mean, sometimes you'd almost feel it's better for them to hate you and get it over with, but, you know, they're all powerful. That kind of creeps you out, but you're like, here, you got to pretend that you like them or you're going to a prison camp. Yeah, I mean, North Korea, fascinating country, but after releasing this episode, no matter what the situation is, it's a country that I would never go to. When I was in South Korea, there was the opportunity to, like, go to the North Korean hotel because they've got a small tourist industry that foreign people can go across the border like as long as they're not south korean for like one day to stay at a visit in one particular north korean hotel i was tempted by it but like again it would seem very grim now there's also tours of north korea that you know you can arrange but yeah after putting out this episode i would not dream of doing that and after what happened to otto warm beer it wouldn't have seemed the most cleverest thing to do again i mean being irish I don't think there's that much North Korea would want to do with me for leverage. But again, you never know. So, yeah, yeah. But 
I felt very sorry for Shin and Choi for this because, I mean, would you be more like Shin or Choi? Would you be the person who'd be like, nah, nah, I'm not putting up with this and end up in a prison camp? Or would you just be like Choi and be like, okay, here, I'm just going to pretend until I see an exit? Because I really don't know because there's part of me that I kind of feel like, no, you've got to stand up for what you believe in. And then there's part of me who says, okay, I've been researching North Korean work camps and if you're kidnapped, you just say, no, glorious leader is glorious leader. Yeah, that's strange. But the Kim Jong-un episode next week should be pretty good. I'm looking forward to that. That was actually originally my plan for this episode, that it was actually just going to be on the death of Kim Jong-nam. But I started just writing about North Korean history, and then I came across this story, and then I watched a documentary. There is a great documentary out there called the dictator and the lovers or the lovers and the dictator where you can actually see Choi and hear like Shin's audio. You can actually hear audio of Kim Jong-il. He was actually a notoriously shy person. He only spoke once in the history of North Korean television on TV. So it's actually quite fascinating for like Korean historians that you have these tapes of him talking. And, you know, even if you're listening to him talking, I mean, I know it's partly because like of the way Koreans speak and like, the stylistic thing but he comes across as you know he's keeps doing this thing like oh hey you know i didn't mean to be mean he's like an abusive boyfriend kind of way oh the whole thing's kind of creeps me a bit out but i am glad that they managed to escape because the life that shin and Choi had would have been a lot more privileged than most people in north korea i mean they were told what to wear they were told where to go but they had a relative amount of freedom. And take, there's people in North Korea who are just born in a village. They'll die in the village. And because their grandfather didn't do a certain action, it means that their children will never get certain opportunities. And that's just weird to me. So moving on, uh, for season two, what I decided I wanted to do was for a two-year anniversary, which was on the 16th of June, was to get a bunch of fellow podcasters to send in some uh, notes or to send in some voicemails and for us to share them. But unfortunately, the 16th of June has passed. What we're going to actually do is we're going to play these week on week. So I'm going to try and get a build-up because I've got two or three of these and I've asked a bunch of people. Different people are going to leave me a voicemail and they're going to tell me how great I am because I'm awesome like that. Like... If I was in North Korea, you know, I'd be the number one handsome boy apart from the leaders. They call me Kim Jong Swoon. And I've really got a huge ego like that. This is from Norvin Gord from the Wisdom of Comics YouTube channel. So uh, take it away, Gord, and uh, we're going to listen to this voicemail. I've stumbled upon a serious issue which, after pointed out, is hard to miss. By the end, I'm sure you'll want a tissue and be left thinking, first Harambe, now this? I think it's time we got honest about the scapegoat pod. There's something going on, and it's really kind of odd. Who gets the blame, and who gets away with murder? No episode is the same, but they're all hosted by a suspicious goat herder. His name is Luke, and if you listen until the end, you might think twice before considering him your friend. The Scapegoat podcast is mind-blowing, like the bullet that took out JFK. I'm not saying Luke did it, but where was he that day? Long ago, in ancient times, before you downloaded this and listened to my rhymes, a meteor hit the planet in all its blazing glory, but eyewitness accounts paint a slightly different story. By the fire amongst the dead, they saw an Irishman cooking s'mores. When asked what happened, unanimously they said, Luke killed the dinosaurs. The truth about history is that we've been lied to, and we should have learned some lessons. So regarding a mystery in the 40s, where were you, Luke? Because I've got about six million questions. I believe you got away with murder and the show is a shell game, so you can throw people off the scent and avoid taking any blame. I've listened to every episode and I've made a lot of inspections. Corkboard, red string, I found all the connections. This is classic misdirection, a form of overprotection. Carl Jung called this behavior psychological projection. But I'm on to you now, you can't avoid my detection, confess. It'll be an overdue course correction. And don't give me any objection because I see through your deflection. My name is Northern Gord, and I have weapons-grade pattern recognition. I'll leave nothing unexplored. The truth is my primary mission. 
we've come to the conclusion, so I'll leave your audience with this. To eliminate confusion, here's my hypothesis. Luke assassinated someone, though I'm not sure of his motivation. It wasn't for fun, it was due to repeated aggravation. He hid the body out at sea, returned, and burned the boat. It's also obvious to me that the murder weapon was a goat. Okay, I don't quite know what to take of this. I mean, rarely do you get accused of killing the dinosaurs on the Holocaust, but uh, good work, Gord. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, yes, I've got the next episode planned out to be out for next Monday. I'm going to try and make this as regular as I can, starting from season two. So thanks very much for listening to this till the end. Uh, you've been great. Okay, well, uh, if you want to listen to the back catalogue, that would also be good if this is your first time. I'd advise listening to uh, How to Take Over the Movie Industry for Dummies. That's where we were talking about the Hayes Act and uh, you know general stuff about how the American uh, movie industry became censored. So before I go, I just wanted to say, like everyone out there, you know, the Scapegoat podcast, you know, it hasn't been up for three months. But what I just want to say out there is it's okay to fail. It's okay for something not to go right in your life. And, you know, for me, everything's been going right, but it was a bad laptop. But for anyone out there who's kind of feeling a bit stressed or feeling a bit like things aren't going your way, you just have to remember, like, you're worth it. You can fight through it and... You know, there's people out there who really care about you. So just in case there's anything out there which is bothering people or worrying them, it's always good to talk and try and reach out to other people. Because, you know, most people do care about you and they will listen. And I just think it's always important to get your head straight and try and make sure that, like, you've got the best mental health going forward. So if anyone's feeling bad, just make sure that you take care of yourselves out there, guys. Okay?